Welcome to Common Ground with Bill Walton, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists, and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics, and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. A central theme of this show is that we need to bring about policies and a culture in ways that foster human flourishing. One of the big things to get right is robust economic growth that creates opportunities for everyone. Yet today, you see more and more headlines telling us that the promise of faster economic growth has become a study in the triumph of hope over experience. Or if Trump thinks he can get 3% economic growth, he's dreaming. Or what about no or slow growth is the new normal? Well, I do not think it has to be, and there are a lot of things we can do to return to the growth rates that America has enjoyed in the past. What's at stake for an ordinary American to borrow a word is huge. If annual economic growth is 4% instead of 2%, family income can practically double in 18 years from $56,000 to over $100,000. At 2%, it takes almost 40 years to achieve the same growth. It's worth the effort to get our economic policies right. With me today to talk about this are Steve Moore and John Tamney. Stephen Moore is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Heritage Foundation, previously a member and senior economics writer for the Wall Street Journal's editorial board, and the founder of Club for Growth. Steve is an expert in public policies that drive economic growth and is the author of several books on economics, including Return to Prosperity with Arthur Laffer, and It's Getting Better All the Time, the 100 Greatest Trends of the Last 100 Years with Julian Simon. Welcome, Steve. John Tamney is a senior fellow in economics at Reason Foundation, a senior economic advisor to Toriador Research and Trading, and editor of RealClearMarkets.com. John frequently writes for the Wall Street Journal, Investors Business Daily, Financial Times, National Review, and London's Daily Telegraph. He writes about the securities markets along with tax, trade, and monetary policy issues. He is the author of Who Needs the Fed and Popular Economics. He's a weekly guest on Forbes on Fox. His next book is The End of Laziness. Welcome, John. Thank you. Well, gentlemen, are the doomsdayers and fatalists right, or can we do better? Steve, you want to go first? Oh, sure we can. In fact, you know, our history is, is to do better. The, the average growth rate for the last 100 years in the United States is 3.5%. So when Donald Trump says he's aiming for 3% um, and the left hyperventilates, they're saying we can't even grow below average, which is preposterous. Now, there are special challenges. It is true, Bill, that we are seeing, um, you know, we have uh, 10,000 baby boomers retiring every year. So that's a demographic challenge because it means more people are leaving the workforce and there aren't as many millennials driving, driving into the workforce. But I think that's a solvable problem. There's 100 million people in this country that are over the age of 16 that are not working. Uh, now, not all those people could be working, but uh, tens of millions of them could. Um, so I think through, you know, greater um, labor force participation and, um, you know, the right tax policies, energy policies, regulatory policies, and so on, you can you can dramatically improve productivity and get to uh, 4% growth. The only other thing I would measure mention right off the bat is a lot of people say, well, gee, this, this you know, we've had this long recovery, it's running out of gas. And I, I'm of a totally different opinion. This has been a non-recovery for, 
you know, I mean, we've grown at 1.9%. Last year, we grew at 1.6%. There has been, for half of America, there's been no recovery at all. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely John. Uh, yeah, the idea that we can't grow above 3% is a truly impoverishing thought. And it goes back to something that we all know from uh, Henry Hazlitt's book, one of the great quotes of all time, what is harmful or disastrous to an individual must be equally harmful or disastrous the collection of individuals that make up a nation. And all Hazlitt was saying is the economy is not some blob that we touch. It's just a collection of individuals. Can individuals grow much more than 3% a year? Well, obviously they can. How do you do that? You just remove or reduce the barriers to the natural desire among humans to produce. Whatever one's ideology, an individual is not enhanced by higher taxes. An individual is not enhanced and growing more if more hours are spent complying with regulations. An individual is not wealthier if the dollar being earned is being devalued all the time. An individual can't attain more wealth if they're barred from, from, from tra transacting with people around the world. Growth is easy at much higher rates than 3%. It's just about freeing the individual. Now, our friend Taylor, Tyler Cowan talks about four major components of growth. He talks about there are four things you've got to have, either growth in labor, labor participation, growth in labor skills, growth in investment, or uh, innovation. How do you how do you see those? Or is that How does this line up against uh, what you guys have just sure. been talking about? I mean, about? that's all true. I mean, I think innovation is, is the driver of it all. I mean, if you have an innovation, you'll get people into the workforce. And uh, if there's a demand for people to work, you'll find the workers, America as well, especially. Um, and so innovation comes from uh, a lot of things. It comes from just human ingenuity. It also comes from um, businesses investing more in science and research and development and building more factories. And one of the reasons, like the left is totally hypocritical here under, under Obama, Every year, Obama predicted we could we would get four percent growth. Did you know that, Bill? He predicted every single one of his budgets would get four percent growth. And as you do know, well, I think I stopped listening after a couple <laughs> yeah, of years. Yeah, who listened to his budget? <laughs> but the amazing thing that is, in ten years, he never achieved three percent growth. Yeah. Now all the people what like was the average one point one point eight one point nine. The average growth rate was one point nine, and the yeah. last year was one point six, yeah. which is pathetic. I mean, that's barely staying out of recession. So what happened? I think with the the economics. Uh, profession has a lot of explaining to do. So you have people like Larry Summers, who was the chief economist for Obama, who has coined this new phrase called secular stagnation. That is what exactly what we're talking about. We can't grow any faster. And they're, they're saying that because all of their ideas struck out. Massive increases in government borrowing and spending, tax increases on the rich, minimum wage increases, the Fed, you know, just flooded the, the uh, U.S. economy with, uh, with uh, cheap dollars and zero interest rate policy. So the, the left threw every possible page of their uh, playbook at this recession, and none of it worked. And so now they're throwing up their hands saying, well, nothing works if what we proposed didn't work. And that's wrong. We're, our ideas that, that the three of us believe in and Heritage believes in, and I think Donald Trump, for the most part, believes in, will get growth uh, to, to happen. Well, I'll just we'll throw out one statistic. Yeah. Uh, there were quarters... Under Ronald Reagan, these same people, by the way, said Reagan's policies wouldn't work. We had policy reporters where it over eight percent growth. Well, you know, I had this experience <laughs> when I was when I was running Allied Capital that people would say, "What do you think about the economy? Where it's going to go?" And I said, "Well, I can't really tell you much about the economy in general because I'm not a macroeconomist, and macroeconomists generally don't understand much about <laughs> the economy." That's true. 
but I do understand entrepreneurs. I understand business models. I understand innovation and what people are doing to, to grow their individual piece of the economy. And it seems to me like one of the big differences that we have with the other side is we believe in individual imagination, entrepreneurship, driving innovation, and don't believe in these 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 forces of nature. There was a uh, what was the piece in the in the foreign uh, uh, foreign affairs that that said we've got the three big D's we're fighting now: depopulation, deleveraging, and deglobalization. I mean, these are all sort of Marxian forces in history that they're talking about, and we're talking about individuals. Is that always always about individuals and you break it down, you can then see why economic growth is blindingly simple. Uh, individuals want more, hence they produce. So you reduce the barriers to production. Uh, what is the big driver is that people need to be able to invest. And so the capital gains tax is a tax, a penalty placed on investment success. There is no advance without investment. You need enormous failure. Silicon Valley, 90% of the companies there started this year will be dead by next year. That is called progress. We're growing less because we're investing less. And so if you remove those barriers, you're going to see massive growth because individuals naturally can grow much faster than 3%. That is just too low of a number for what we're talking about. You know, I, one of the interesting things about this debate is what people are calling the paradox of productivity. And this is something that even puzzles me as an economist. Maybe you two have an explanation for this. But we are living in this digital age that is just exploding with incredible, you know, things with automation, with uh, 3D uh, photography, with uh, incredible robotics and so on that should be dramatically increasing the productivity of American workers. But it's not showing up in the official statistics. And I'm, I have to confess, I'm puzzled by that. Why is it? that these incredible innovations that we've seen over the last 25 years, the advent of the microprocessor, one of the greatest inventions ever, aren't translating into higher higher um, growth rates. But but I do think if you look at what's going to happen in the next 10 or 15 years with automated uh, vehicles, with uh, robotics, all of these things, we have the potential to see productivity rates, Bill, that have never been recorded before in human history. Ooh. Yeah, who was the economist several years, several decades ago? So you can see the impact of the IT revolution everywhere, but in the productivity yeah, exactly. statistics. It's puzzling. I mean, well, one of the things I wonder about is we talk about a number. We talk about two percent, three percent, four percent, and I think there's a lot of maybe rethinking about how you measure GDP and mm -hmm. what it is, and whether we're really capturing all the. Uh, you know, how, how fast are we growing if you've got an iPhone here that does, mm -hmm. you know, 500 things more that 500 devices used to do, uh, you know, 20 years ago? In well, every speech that I give, I, I like to point out that, you know, um, in uh, the movie Wall Street, remember that uh, movie with Michael Douglas? You know, he's got his, his, uh, his cell phone, <laughs> and it's like the brick with the antenna coming out of it that had lousy, you know, coverage. It wasn't a smartphone. It didn't have a GPS system, and that thing cost four thousand yeah. dollars. You know, that movie was only made twenty-five or thirty years ago. So this is an indication. T today they give the damn things away for free, and they're amazing. You know, uh, machines. So you're right. I don't think that's to totally captured in these productivity numbers. Yeah, uh, GDP is a near worthless statistic. We are talking about a number that if someone bombed Bethesda today and we rebuilt <laughs> it, that would increase GDP. Government spending increases GDP. If you bail out your weakest companies and they produce more of anything, it will go up. That's why growth was high in China and the Soviet Union in the 70s, but anyone with an eye could see that there was no growth. That iPhone that you just picked up would have been a supercomputer 10 years ago worth mm -hmm. millions of dollars 
if the technology had existed to make it, these numbers don't come close to recognizing the dynamism in this economy. And what a waste of time that we that we create them in the first place. I say part of the problem is that as economists and them creating these statistics that gives government a reason to act, people can grow. They just need to be free to grow. So how do we how's it, then as we think about translating policy here in Washington into some of these ideas, I mean, you've got a you've got a measurement system, which is imperfect GDP. You've got a static budget analysis. You've got a regulatory framework, which looks backwards, not forwards. I mean, we've got 19th century regulations and a 21st century technology economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a, we have a new president. Um, well, how do you how do you drive change here? I mean, these are. You know, are there any two or three or four levers that we would want to focus on to make a big difference? Yeah, I'll, I'll focus on two that I've been working on with the with the Trump administration that I think are pretty vital. I mean, the obvious one is, is tax reform, just fixing our tax system. You couldn't come up with anything dumber than our corp the way we tax our businesses. I mean, seriously, we could sit around here and spend days trying to figure out something stupider than what we do in the United States. That we have the highest tax rates in the world on our businesses. We don't even raise much money from it. You know, it's incredibly, you know this, Bill, you, you had to deal with it when you were a CEO. So these things are, uh, there's, there's so much dollars to be picked up by just fixing the tax system. And we estimated, I, as you know, I helped uh, Trump put that plan together. We estimate you can increase growth by one percentage point just from fixing the tax system. And the second one I'll throw out there is energy policy. And this is something, by the way, Trump has exactly the right outlook on. Produce American energy because of the shale oil and gas revolution. We have the capacity to become the Saudi Arabia of the 21st century in terms of oil, gas, coal, nuclear power, all of this stuff. Uh, use what works. Let the market determine what we're going to use. Obama put in place regulations intended to kill the fossil fuels industry because the left hates fossil fuels. But we have more of this stuff than any other country. So we could, by my estimates, increase our output of, uh, of energy by $150 billion a year. That's close to one percentage point. So just there, those two things alone could almost raise GDP by two percentage points. And I'm sure Johnny has a lot of ideas that would raise it still help further. Me out there. How do you figure that out? I mean, you've got a policy, you implement it, and then you say it's going to increase productivity or going to increase output by X. Because we know how much oil there is. Okay. I mean, and, you know, there's mat we have, we're sitting on $50 trillion yeah. of oil and gas and coal in this country. Yeah. And it's been a lot of it's been walled off by, you know, you talk about government regulations. You know, 95% of the drilling revolution that happened with the shale oil and gas revolution, 95% of that drilling happened on private lands because the public lands was off limits. Hmm. If you open up, you know, that public lands, you're going to see a huge boom in development. But if I can, my comment on that would be, if you look at the two major oil booms in the last 40 years in the U.S., they both coincided with the weakest growth in U.S. history. And I don't think that's by accident. I think fracking's amazing. I think the engineering is off the charts. But by their own admission, they can't extract this unless the oil is trading at 40 to $60 a barrel. Maybe that number's dropped, but it's still fairly high. As in, oil is only a good industry in the U.S. when we are severely devaluing the dollar. My take is that, conversely, you look at the best periods of economic growth, Reagan and Clinton, oil was 10 12 $20 a barrel. The U.S. industry was on its back, well, yet we were booming. We let backwards countries provide us with oil, and we focused on the more advanced things, the Silicon Valley, the advances that no one else in the world can do. The reality is Equatorial Guinea can do oil. 
no one can do what we do technologically. And so my focus would be with Steve on tax reform. Taxes are a price. Reduce the price of work, investment, all of that. Uh, thank goodness Trump is for a, an estate, getting rid of the estate tax. That is hugely bullish for re releasing a lot of uh, risk-oriented capital into the marketplace. The other thing is, and it goes back to the oil question, is a stable dollar. When the dollar is stable, there's a great deal more investment in the stocks and bonds representing future wealth creation. When the dollar is weak, there's a massive flow of investment into wealth that already exists, that's tangible. Tangibles did well in the 70s and 2000s. They got killed in the 80s and 90s. Stabilize and strengthen the dollar, and you will see an investment surge that will, that will be stunning. And with that economic growth. Well, I agree with a lot of that. I mean, look, my point is that the oil and gas shale revolution is a technological revolution. You know, it's not as if God just overnight endowed America with the, all this oil and gas. It's that, it's that you know, um, these, these uh, wildcatters, these drillers went out and figured out how to crack the code of getting at the shale oil and gas. We have a more, more of it than any other country in the world. So it's, you know, like saying, you know, you know, Obama's idea was, well, let's not use it. It's like, well, that's like telling Nebraskans not to grow corn, you know. So uh, I, I think that this is a great opportunity we have uh, as a country. But I'll just give you one little example of the productivity revolution, how it can so change things. You know, the other day I was driving down uh, 95 uh, south from Philadelphia back to Washington, D.C. It was late at night. And I, tr I uh, passed a caravan of about five trucks, and they were all— riding almost like a train in the right lane. And I passed by them. And do you know how many uh, drivers there were in those five trucks? One. The other four were basically automated running right behind them. And in a few years, there'll probably be no, you know, no drivers of those trucks. Well, think about what that's going to mean to transportation costs in this country. I mean, it's just one little example of, of why these leftists who say, gosh, it's almost like, you know, the patent officer well, who in well, the 1900s said everything that's been invented already has been. But, but, you know. but the other side of that is those five uh, those four true. truck yeah. drivers that are not in those cabs but voted, you could make for that Donald case. Trump. I mean, that's a great point, Bill, but you <laughs> could make that case about, you know, if you look, Milton Friedman used to say, if you want to, we can put everybody, American, uh, to work in a nanosecond, we, just get rid of farm tractors and put everybody back well, in the Yeah, he, that story about him visiting China, and yeah. they visited the construction oh, yeah. project. Give him, and give him no, food. Was, 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 the story was, they yeah. said, well, this is... A, so product, my point is productivity, <laughs> making workers more productive, is how they command higher wages and how we get richer. Okay, well, there's a lot of hand-wringing right now over the fact that if we replace these truck drivers with... Uh, Computers that we're not going to be jobs for them. Doesn't that happen over generations? And we're talking about a change that's going to occur in it's 10, 15 years. Hopefully, it happens. It's going to happen fast. Hopefully, it happens more quickly. I mean, let's let's go back 150 years. 150 years ago, if you were living on this earth in the United States, your odds were one of two that your job was going to be farm related. I don't know about the two of you, but I would be desperately pathetic and object of pity on farms. Every advance from the tractor, the airplane, the car, the computer, internet, ATM has been a massive job destroyer. And this is, the, this is what human flourishing is all about. Human flourishing is the path to people doing the very work that elevates their unique skills. The only way you get to that is through the destruction of low-value work. That is the path to people doing the work they love. If we, can, if we can erase through automation and productivity, we're going to free up so much capital for entrepreneurs, for the companies and ideas of the future. Truck drivers will be 
extravagantly happy to be free of trucks because it, it, the economy that frees them of it is going to create opportunities that elevate their skills unlike what existed before. Well, a lot of us, me anyway, are having a hard time envisioning how we go. You can see the agricultural revolution occurring over a century, and it happened in Europe as well as here. We're talking about something that's going to happen it's coming. Pronto. It's coming really fast. Yeah, you're right. And people aren't ready for it. And there will be there will be disruptive effects. No question about it. You know. So, if, you know, one. I read a statistic the other day. It sounds about true. One out of every eleven American males today is employed driving a vehicle. Yeah. Well, guess what? Fifteen years from now, that's not going to be one in twelve. It'll people will be one in a hundred. So that means people are going to have to learn other skills and and do other things. And there has to be an adjustment process to that. But you know, robotics and you know, when I was a kid, I remember going to a uh, Ford factory, and those were grud- you know just grungy, gritty, you know, hard hat sweat, you know, sweatshops, you know, and I was like, I don't know, I don't want to do this. If you go into a car factory today, it's, you know, people it run, running like around it. in white, yeah. you know, Ooh. scientific equipment dealing with the diagnostics and, and so on. So uh, these transitions are going to be tough, but they're also going to lead to a lot more output. But I, I think Steve hit on the essential point there going into the factory long ago. You go, there's a new book out called Plane Through the Whistle about Aliquippa, Pennsylvania. Tony Dorsett came from there. All these great athletes, Mike, Mike Ditka, all of their parents worked in steel mills. And what was their constant admonition? You will not work in these mills. These mills will break you. Hmm. Look at what they have done to us. The destruction of work is the path to work that people like a lot more. We romanticized the past, and it was an ugly one. It was not a good one. It's exactly what you say. And so if we can if we can automate a lot of this stuff, the adjustment's going to be very quick because with automation, you get huge surges of investment. We'll create all sorts of jobs we never imagined. We have people nowadays who make livings as video game coaches. And that's just one thing. This is the rise of, of automation. It's freeing people what's, up what's to do a, the a work. Video they game coach. What do they make? Well, because <laughs> video game more players. Yeah. Video game players make. make millions of dollars a year now, and this is the world that's evolving as we destroy the work of the past. Well, how do we make this? I mean, if you, you know, policy people sit around mm-hmm. tables like this and talk, and they say, "Well, we're going to need a new government program to retrain people." <laughs> And I don't think there's been a single government job retraining program in the history of job retraining. And there are a lot of them. That, that work. There are, there are yeah. hundreds yeah. and thousands. They don't work. Yeah. Of course so, they so, do. All right. But so, and then the other problem we have is that there's this issue about labor mobility. Is that people, you know, I saw a documentary, Sarah and I saw a documentary of people living in some small town in western, western Ohio, eastern Ohio, I guess. And it had fallen in hard times because the industry left. And But the question you ask yourself is, well, Gee, the industry left. Why don't you move to Texas and mm-hmm. and try something there? And so the, the labor mobility in this country has been declining, and not not jo- that much though. I think it's over over exaggerated how much labor mobility. Well, I has can't fallen. quote the statistics, yeah. but I you know so you don't. Yeah. Well, I mean, people are moving to that. Well, they're leaving know, California they, and they're going they, to Texas. Yeah, they are. They're going to Texas, Tennessee. They're going to the states. They're growing Utah and Idaho, um, but. You know, look, I'm I'm really optimistic about uh, the U.S. You you clear away these hurdles that John is talking about. You know, on the regulatory front, on the tax front, and just just getting someone like uh, Trump in office who is pro business, as opposed to Tr- Obama who was virulently anti business. 
I think it has a very positive effect on business. And Bush, and Bush wasn't that pro-business either. And he wasn't either. either. No, he in was, fact, you know, the Trump good. voters were saying, we don't like what Bush did or Obama did. But, yeah. you know, yeah. that, that has a positive impact in terms of people's sense of confidence that the government's just going to not uh, take away all their, you know, their profits if they, if they succeed. That's why, you know, the Bernie Sanders ideas of just stealing from the rich is so detrimental. But it seems like part of the problem we have in... in you know, they're, they're, it's like we live in different worlds, really. You talk about shale oil and, and extracting that. And the people, and you say, well, how are you going to get growth without doing it? And the people say, we don't care about growth. I mean, the environment's more important than growth. And uh, um, so we're really talking about two different goods, and, and, and the sides don't share what those goods are. Well, people Thoughts? who say they don't care about growth are obviously very rich. You could only be rich <laughs> to say something so ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and so we live, one of the, probably the downsides, but I say it's worth it to stupendous economic growth is that it frees up a lot of pe people with the time to be stupid. California, I would argue, has been made a great economic state by the very people who wrecked its policies. And so this is just part of the, part of, I guess, progress. We have to deal with, Schumpeter, what did he say that, Capitalism's biggest problem is the institutions that it will create, mm -hmm. fighting it. Well, you know, the, the big issue we started this conversation on is, are there enough workers that are entering the, the workforce to be able to create 3 4 5% growth? And my answer to that is yes. I mean, we, there are, we spend at the federal level, you want to talk policy bill, we spend roughly a trillion dollars a year paying people not to work. Well, guess what? If you pay people not to work, you're going to get less work. So... Just, just you know, requiring work as a condition for uh, virtually every welfare benefit. Just something that simple. We, you know, we're a compassionate country. If you, you know, we don't want you to go homeless. We don't want you to go without food. But you're going to have to work for it. That changes everything. We, we know those kinds of policies can lead to a big increase in, in, in the labor force growth. And, of course, immigration, too. I mean, we should be letting talented and skilled people in this country. And we, this is our demographic uh, safety valve as a country, is that we can, we can import the workers that we need, and, and we get the best and the brightest and the hardest working. It's been one of our formulas for growth. It's the one of the things I disagree with Trump on. We need more immigrants now, not less. But they got to come legally. I well, I, I don't think he... Anyway, staying away from the Trump piece of it, but what about incentives? Has, has any, you guys know a lot of smart people. Has anybody taken a look at the government, federal government programs in terms of incentives and what they're encouraging people to do or not do? I think about debt, for example. We've had interest rate deductions um, in the taxes for debt, which has encouraged this massive over-leveraging of both <laughs> individuals and corporations. And now we have a new proposal in front of us to get rid of the interest rate deduction on debt, which, is, which has been a terrible incentive to leverage up. And we're getting huge pushback against that because of the industries that benefit from it. I mean, how are we yeah. going to? Well, you're right. We, we have a, our tax system is uh, tilted towards, you know this, you were in the industry yourself. I mean, it's tilted towards debt financing rather than equity financing. And that's, you know, it should be the tax system should be at least neutral. And we know what created the, the financial crisis in 2007 and 8 and 9. It was, you know, way too much debt being issued. And, uh, you know, so why would we have a tax policy that, that rewards more and more leverage? Well, it's, it's almost, think about just for housing alone. Housing's consumption. When you buy a house, it doesn't make you more productive or it doesn't lead to the next Microsoft. Yet we create incentives to own a house, which if we want to talk about labor mobility, ownership of a house could make you less mobile. But think about just municipal debt. If you buy a municipal bond, 
you get your, your yields are tax-free, federal, federal and state. And so there's an incentive for very rich people to plow their money into something that is tax advantage. Yet if they have the temerity to invest in a future Microsoft, and if it succeeds, they're facing, what, 23% capital gains tax? Think of it. It's, it's not just the debt. It's the incentives created to where to invest your money. Imagine if we got rid of the tax advantage federally for munis and some of these bonds. I'm all in favor of that. <laughs> of course, Bill, Bill's friends, those bond traders, aren't going to be too happy about that. Well, but they would be you making know. so much money in other ways. But you're right. I mean, even the housing deduction, all that stuff should just be eliminated. Keep the rate. I mean, I'm an old flat tax guy. I mean, Steve Forbes really converted me to this 20 years ago. I mean, just get the rates as low as possible so they're, you know, they're not distorting economic decisions. Uh, you need taxes to raise the revenues that the government needs, but you want a system that collects that revenue in a very efficient system. And I don't think there's much any, much better than the way Steve Forbes implemented it. And my goodness, we've been talking about this for 20 years. Let's do it. Let's let's go out there and have the lowest tax rates in the world, not the highest tax rates in the world. That magnetic pull that's pulling factories and jobs and capital out of the United States, you bring those rates down and the magnetic pull reverses and the, the, the factories and jobs come back. So our rate's 35% highest yeah, in the Yeah, and then 40 if you include the states and localities, and most other countries are at 20 so it's like a 20% head start program for every country that we compete with. I mean, it's stupid. Well, what do you say about the people that say, well, GE, even though the 35% rate's there, they don't pay any taxes at all? Well, that's I mean, it seems exactly to me, right. So that seems to me that the rates yeah. are one thing. We talk about rates. We really got to simplify this, this is whole the, thing. Well, we got why rid I of would the, focus the, on, on in, individual And rates I, think, yeah. I think it's a populist no, no, no. move. You I want, agree, if you want to get real corporate tax reform, you're exactly you got to. Right. So, so what we should say, look, <clears throat> you're, you know, the statutory rate is 35%, and a lot of industries do pay 35%, but you're right. There are a lot of major Fortune 50 yeah. companies that pay you know, 5% or less, the wind industry pays negative. Well, yeah, the government yeah, pays yeah. them to produce well, their stuff. So that's why you want a, flat, a lower rate that gets rid of all those mm -hmm. deductions. So everybody, you know, what Americans want from the tax system, they want growth. But the other thing, you know what word they always say they want from the tax system? Fairness. It's not fair if you and I make the same amount of money and you pay, you know, half of the tax that I do. And, and you know, I would just add on, I mean, I th Steve has made the point that corporate tax doesn't raise very much. You bring up G. Ultimately, the effective rate goes down through all the deductions. The shame of that is that you get it down by doing what government wants. But that's why, at least politically, if I were advising Trump, I'd say lead with individual rate cuts across the board because it's felt immediately by individuals, and then the economy would feel it soon enough through more investment. The problem with corporate rates is that if you brought it down to 20%, for a lot of corporations, that's actually going to be a tax hike, is my guess. Yeah, the and average rate's about 12, 14%. Yeah, and so if you, if you, if, so I think you lead with this one first and then go for the simplification. We shouldn't have a corporate tax. Individuals pay the tax. It's a double tax on earnings because individuals are the shareholders. But I think you lead with, with individual rates first. Well, I don't think there should be a corporate tax at all. <laughs> I think it's a terrible waste of resources. I mean, how many billions of dollars does GE spend? That's exaggerated. Well, think about applying and, and, and paying at zero taxes. Mm -hmm. I'd, I'd like to see the tax well, lawyers. Well, think about perhaps, what a 35% uh, tax rate really means. It means that, you know, for those companies that are paying it, 35% of the profits go to the federal government. So, in a sense, it makes the United States government a one third shareholder in every company in America, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's. That just dilutes the value that goes to, you know, everybody else. And so you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a dumb tax system.
So we started out talking about 2% versus 4%. What are the what are the five things that get us to 4%? Well, I mentioned two, and you we mentioned we got a couple minutes left. So yeah. let's let's take it off here. Yeah. So what do we what do we what's number tax one? tax policy and energy policy? You mentioned I monetary. Would, I would put dollar a treasury yeah. issuing a stable dollar number one taxes. Um, I think something the estate tax. I think people underrate getting rid of that altogether. If you look at the dynamic, ESPN, the light bulb. Silicon Valley, all creations of inherited wealth. Rich people who have so much money they can take the big risks that the average person can't take. That'd be a big one. I'd throw immigration in there. All these talented people around the world are desperate. To what do you here. mean on immigration? What's that mean? Um, I want to legalize the ability of people from around the world to work here because I think you'd see a massive inflow. People want to be a part of this. They don't even want to be citizens. I think they want to work here. And then if you gave me another one, antitrust, can you imagine all the waste in this country because companies are unable to combine? I think, I think that could be huge. I, I would add happen. to this. Um, now we're getting a long list, right? We're seven or eight. <laughs> but I would <laughs> add to this. I mean, Dictator. Just a total revolution. We can, we can fill the page. Yes. This, this is a, good. A, a total mean, revolution. Good ideas. Totally, not enough of them. A total revolutionary <laughs> change in the way we... we educate people, kids in this country. I mean, let's just get government out of schools and let's just let the dollars chase the, let the, let the dollars go to the parents and just let's, you know, I have, I have three kids and two, uh, uh, step, uh, sons and, you know, they're all different. You know, they all have different talents. They all have skill, different skills. They have different interests. This idea of warehousing all these kids in the, in a one size fits all, uh, you know, school system is just outrageous. You know, you, we, we are, we, you know, John's mentioned this so many times in his books and uh, that, you know, our number one resource is the intelligence and the, and the ingeniousness of our citizens. But we're robbing half of our kids of the opportunity to do that because we're putting them in god-awful schools. Well, but you're saying terrible things about the teachers. <laughs> no, <laughs> look, you're, you're being mean. No, I actually, no, I'm look, making a point. Well, I, we had Jeannie Allen on a couple weeks ago. I love ago. Jeannie. And we got to the point where we figured out if you could bring about all the technological innovation that's possible to bring into a school building, you could free up the classroom teacher to have a really interesting job enabling all this learning mm. and pay them more. And of so we, could, we concluded by thinking, well, maybe we ought to get the teachers union behind this because they're Except blocking. you need a way to get it's, it's that <laughs> The problem is. Really good teachers are underpaid, but there's you know how many how many the teachers really good were, teachers leave you know how many teachers were fired in California last year? I can't imagine <laughs> like 15. any. <laughs> no, like how fifteen are, out, of, out of twenty thousand. You know, so yeah. that's ridiculous. I mean, no, who else has tenure other than teachers? So that's another example of an industry that is so important. And you know, obviously, Obamacare has has been a big drag on the economy. It's 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 uh, reducing the labor force. It's it's creating an incredibly inefficient uh, healthcare system, which is one-sixth of our economy. So we could just go down this list and, and just clear. But the common denominator here is get the government the hell out of the way, Bill. I mean, really. <laughs> it's not that complicated. Yeah. Well, there is. We've had a, we, we're having, we got to wrap up here in, in a minute, but we, we, we've had a fairly wonky discussion about a lot of interesting things to the three of us. <laughs> How do you translate these ideas? For example, uh, I don't know. 
shale drilling and how it affects an ordinary person and make them, making them before it. I mean, when it's been so demonized by the by the environmental left. No, I think they get it. I think most Americans get this. It's yeah. like a win-win. You know, we get the jobs, we get the energy. You know, we we don't have to buy the stuff from Saudi Arabia and you know Russia and Putin. So that one's I think not very difficult to explain to people. I think. The tax one is a little harder because people say, oh, well, you know, the left says it's going to be tax cuts for the rich. You know, we have to basically say, look, if you want a good job, you have to have a healthy employer. And to, to put our businesses in such a hole is, is, is hurting the whole job creation, creating process. And, and, and I think you start personalizing it. Too often this talk is about revenues or deficits and everything. What I always say is how many of you people today in the audience have have bought something from Amazon in the past month? Or do you have an Apple computer? Do you have something from Dell? And they all raise their hands. You know, Jobs died a billionaire. Jeff Bezos is on the verge of being the richest man in the world. Would, wouldn't you love to multiply these kinds of people? Why would you want to penalize the people who constantly make our lives better? And in terms of the dollar, I think it's very simple. Why on earth would you want to earn dollars that your U.S. Treasury is constantly shrinking the value of? Doesn't it seem logical to you that your dollar would hold its value? And so most people would agree with that, at which point if you have a stable dollar, investment surges, and we have companies and jobs that we never imagined. Well, the thing I'm interested in is how we can get these ideas out so more people act in them. Uh, but then I stop and think about it. A lot, these ideas are already shared by the majority of people in America. I mean, if you look at the states, the uh, more conservative thinkers control, what, two-thirds of the state houses and governorships? And 69 out of 99. That's about two-thirds. And so the real translation issue is how do you get it inside, in, inside the beltway here to get people <laughs> to understand that they really do have people on their side and do the right thing? Well, um, I'm a big believer in, the, in just moving power out of Washington. I think it was interesting that Donald Trump's, you know, closing argument in the, in the election was one of his strongest arguments, was drain the swamp. You know, people are catching on that. How is it that three of the five wealthiest counties in America are in and around Washington, D.C., you know, when we don't produce anything here except lawyers, lobbyists, rules, regulations, and politicians? You know, so we get the rich off the rest of the country. Let's, let's move that power, decentralize the power. I think people are ready for that. So the next government building gets built in Ohio, not in D.C.? <laughs> well, hopefully there won't be any more government <laughs> buildings. Back there. Well, well, no, but, but that's the ideal, is, is that there's the, some quote in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that Democrats are terrified of Republicans and vice versa. What a sad commentary on what this country's become. It used to be that you could choose your bliss. If you wanted to live a certain size of government, you would choose maybe Massachusetts. If you wanted smaller, you might choose New Hampshire. The idea is that people should choose their government in the states. Very few little policy should come from Washington. And I think if we explain that better, it would help our process very well. So the other big idea is federalism. Yeah, Moving more and more out to the states and getting, letting, people, letting the mm -hmm. states experiment with what people want there. I think we solved our problem. Now, if you put even <laughs> half, of those, half of those ideas in place, you're talking about you know 1.8% growth rate going up to doubling it. You can get it to three and a half percent to four. And that, you know, the difference is then instead of like the debt, you know, going up every year, our national debt is a share of GDP, it goes down every year and it just becomes a non-problem. Uh, non Gro growth solves so many of these problems that we have, whether it's income inequality, whether it's the debt and deficit, whether it's how do you solve poverty, give people more health care or infrastructure crisis. You, you're not going to solve any of those problems with an economy that's limping along as it has for the last 20 years. And John? I would just add to that, again, about human flourishing. I don't think anyone would disagree. 
the unsung genius of economic growth is that it frees more and more individuals. It pushes more and more individuals into the kinds of work that most elevates their skills. Slow growth suffocates talent. High growth rewards all manner of talents. It makes geniuses out of a lot of people that slow growth doesn't. Imagine a world that we were growing faster. People would be so much happier. That sounds like a last word. John, <laughs> Steve, thank you. A lot thank of good you, ideas Bill. here. And uh, let's go bring some of this about. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe to Common Ground with Bill Walton on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.